continuing today in 1 John, and I wanted to continue in chapter 3. And let me read from uh, verse 16 to verse 22. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know this by that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Throughout this uh, passage, there is the idea of offering assurance. I, th- I think we're in desperate need of assurance. He says we have confidence. We can ask whatever we want and we'll receive. And the way that this happens is that we abide in him. John will go on to describe this in verse 19. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he in him. We know that that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. Um, We are plagued in this day, literally... Uh, by angst and fear and anxiety. Uh, This has been called the Xanax generation because of the numbers of people that are on some sort of uh, medication for uh, angst and fear. Um, We have a dis-ease in our society. The way that John has traced it, and he traces it here in chapter 3, He traces it, first of all, by a kind of jealousy. And he relates it to, he says, that Cain slew evil because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That Cain was jealous. Uh, He talks about the hatred that there is for all that Christ and Christians represent. He says the world will hate you. And that those who do not abide in Christ, they abide in death. And so he's picturing this world in which I think is filled with hatred, with fear, with jealousy. And then he's describing in contrast the security that we can have as a fellowship. He who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. Well, there's a lack of security. And so one of the most rich resources that we have is one another. Uh, I think literally in terms of material resources that as Christians we should be able to rely on the body of Christ. I think that spiritually, and by spiritually I don't mean airy-fairy kind of stuff, I mean that we need to be able to rely on one another uh, in our interpersonal relationships. And that that is the cure for angst. That is the cure for fear. That is the security that we need John says, if we love with word only and not, you know, and only with our tongues and not our deeds, that this is not love at all. 
And so we need, there's this deep dividedness that he's described throughout. There's alienation. And there's this, as we talked this morning, this alienation is built upon a kind of self-deception. Paul has called it the law of sin and death. Soren Kierkegaard calls it the sickness unto death. Isaiah calls it the covenant with death. John, in, or in uh, uh, Romans, whoever wishes to save it, or Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. He says this in all four Gospels. That there is a pursuit of life that entails the loss of life. Whoever loses his life for my sake, that is, you give up one pursuit, one kind of life, you relinquish that and you pursue life in Christ. He says, then you will, if you... Uh, lose your life for my sake in the gospels you'll save it I don't believe he's just talking about a future judgment I believe he's talking about a present tense reality that we can live our lives in such a way that we're continually losing it we're not really living uh, the di- bible to die, you know, describes it as a kind of death denying identity pride maybe we could sum it all up though the way that John is doing it and say that there is this desire to find security. Uh, I was telling you that earlier about the New Yorker magazine in January published it, uh, went, went around and interviewed uh, the super rich. These are people who are billionaires or, you know, millionaires many times. If you're just a millionaire anymore, you're not, you know, you're not really one of the boys. And it, there's a new phenomenon among the super rich. You know, it used to be that survivalists were the guys that were up in Alaska wearing the camouflage and bearing, you know, canned pork and beans. And uh, actually, my son is personally acquainted with <laughs> the survivalists in Alaska. Um, and so it was a kind of, uh, you know, the, the militaristic. But actually, among the super rich, there is the same phenomenon. One of these guys estimates that among uh, these billionaires and millionaires, that over 50% of them have taken some sort of action. They've either bought an island or they've bought a shelter or they've they've got some uh, preparation. They're preppers. They're just super rich preppers. Um, And it's occurred among the the people in Silicon Valley it's occurred among hedge fund managers, uh, among technology executives. Um, National Geographic found that 40% of Americans believed that stocking up on supplies or building a bomb shelter was a wiser investment than a 401k. Um, an example of one of these guys, a, na- a man named Steve Huffman, uh, he's 33 years old. And his company is worth $600 million. He's not quite sure of what the threat is. He doesn't know, you know, if half of California is going to fall into the ocean or if there's going to be some sort of final apocalypse. But he says, I own a couple of motorcycles. I have a bunch of guns and ammo. I've stored up food. And he says, I figure I can hole up in my mansion, you know, for some amount of time. Uh, when the apocalypse occurs. Another guy, Mar- uh, Antonio Martinez, he's a 44-year-old, he's a Facebook product manager, and he's bought himself an island in the Pacific, 
And he's set it up with his own generators, solar panels, and he's got thousands of, you know, you've got to protect yourself because when the apocalypse comes, everybody's going to want your stuff, right? So he's got ammunition and guns. He says, when society loses a healthy founding myth, it descends into chaos. And so he's securing himself. Uh, Tim Chang is a 44-year-old. He's a manager of the Mayfield Fund. Um, He says, uh, you know, there may be a civil war, a kind of, uh, he talks about, uh, I have this kind of terror scenario of uh, a kind of apocalypse. And uh, he describes then that he's got a hideaway. And he says that of his friends that are billionaires, uh, that they've either got a helicopter. This guy, he has actually a helicopter that he keeps gassed up all the time. So, and a pilot that's ready. So when the apocalypse comes, he can he take his family and run and jump in the helicopter. There was a group of them around, and, the, and the, one of the guys said, well, wait a minute, you're going to take your pilot with you? You know, <laughs> who are you going to take with you? Uh, John D. Rockefeller may have been the first real millionaire, maybe an actual billionaire in the United States. And it was, he said the novelty of being able to purchase anything one wants soon passes. Because what people most seek cannot be bought with money. I think what people want is security. And they imagine that being wealthy should get you a bit of security. But the irony here is the money seems to bring out the nature of the disease all the more. Now, I don't think these guys are peculiar in their angst and anxiety. It's just they have enough money to, to try to, to, to do something about it. I, I, and I, as I'm talking about this, I don't want to project this out there like, oh, this is a disease these other people have. I think it's a disease we all have. We're all familiar with the fear and the angst. And I think in John, he's giving us the, the, the nature of the cure that we can have security in abiding in Christ, in abiding in the body of Christ, in the rich resource that is to be the body of Christ. Now, if we don't have that, there may be something wrong with the body of Christ that we're fellowshipping with. But I think that's what we need to seek out as a group of people. I haven't heard of, I, I didn't actually know what this was, but do you know what a fidget spinner is? Uh, it's a new little toy. They, they actually created it for children that have uh, anxiety problems, but it's become the new best-selling uh, thing that many adults are buying it. And it's just a little toy that you can sit and play with to get your nervous energy out. It doesn't do anything. You just spin it around to get your energy out. I read, a, this was also from the New York Times. It says that 38% of girls ages 13 to 17 and 26% of boys have anxiety disorders. And anxiety is now ahead of depression. Uh, in, it's the reigning disorder on college campuses across the United States. I'm personally familiar, with, you know, being up at Truman University, uh, the counselors there are booked full time. You can't get in to see a counselor. Uh, for any kind of uh, anxiety disorder. And so there is this fear, there is, as, as 
there's this angst, there's this insecurity that is epidemic. Um, and I think it's the fear of missing out on life. It's the fear of, you know, there's only so much stuff to go around. Uh, it's the, the fear of not belonging, the fear of not being at the center of the group. I believe that this is the fear of the human condition. The human disease drives us to save ourselves and this self-salvation becomes a kind of self-consuming thing that eats us inside, you know, out. We may have the experience of lack, lack of money, it may be lack of time, lack of resources, but all of that boils down to one thing and that is the lack of life. You're just missing life itself. Um, it's somehow beyond articulation, maybe even to say it like that. Maybe it's just the feeling of a lack of self. People who experience degrees of shame say, I'm just in some way missing myself. And this results in a fear of you know the basic drives and impulses which would set us, we imagine if we consume, we attain, we possess that we can secure ourselves, we can get ourselves. Uh, we can, you know, it's not just making a living, but in fact, it becomes making our lives. Uh, and what it becomes, it's taking a life. It's taking your life, and it's taking its, you know, actually a kind of murderous intention that we build up toward other people. Uh, that life itself is really the commodity that is being circulated. Uh, to put it more precisely, maybe life itself is only valued as a foreclosure or a warding off of death. The limited resources are attained and have value because they are, are had by dispossessing. You know, what you get, you dispossess from one another or from another. This is, you know, Rene Girard's picture of uh, the universal nature of sacrifice. That every culture, every society and maybe every human psyche is built upon this kind of zero-sum game. And so in the midst of this, I think we have the assurance of salvation. And don't get the Calvinist notion here of going to heaven when you die. That's not the assurance. I think it's a more immediate assurance. He's describing an immediate existential realization. It's not once saved, always saved. But we realize this assurance in our mutual abiding love. And this very much, you know, the epistle and the gospel very much uh, reflect one another. This sounds a lot like the passage in John when he's describing how we are interconnected with God. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. We talked today about the power of the word and it's the, you know, the kind of lie that we've uh, bought outside of Christ that's displaced with the word of God. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself 
unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. What is the fruit? You know, what is the, the, the thing that's flowing through this vine? What Jesus is ultimately describing is life in the Spirit. It's life itself. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned because they're worthless. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And here's the same language that we have in the epistle. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And that you will uh, so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. There is the security I think that we are seeking. There may be an implication here of final judgment, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is branches that are dead and dying because they're not plugged in to the main vine. He's not, you know, proper discipleship includes obedience and obedient love, dependence on God's word. The relationship between Christ and his disciples, it's an immediate and mutually independent one, just as a vine and its branches are interdependent. The way that Jürgen Moltmann puts it in, in regard to the Holy Spirit, it is a, life, a person's life as a whole which comes to its flowering in the nearness of God, which that person experiences, and in the warmth of God's love. This touches the body with its senses as well as the soul with its feelings and understanding and will. We could talk about a rebirth to true life out of the life drive of the Holy Spirit. We have a death drive outside of Christ and in Christ then we have life itself. In John's picture, the relationship between Christ and his disciples is as immediate and mutually interdependent then uh, as a vine and branches. Those who focus on this, you know, this interrelationship, this abiding, he's describing it as a progressive thing and he describes it as a mutual indwelling or abiding and then you ask whatever you will and it will be done. You will ask and then to a final blossoming, a bearing of much fruit, and this is connected with the final fulfillment of love, of obedient love. What is being described is the process of salvation. Salvation is not just something that happens to us in the future, but we are being saved. We're being saved from angst, fear, death, you know, jealousy. It's similar to the figure in in, in several places in Scripture to the body of Christ, this abiding. Even as the body, this is 1 Corinthians 12, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. There is this union, there is this secure relationship that Paul describes in in Colossians as a relationship to Christ as the head. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. You know, the, what's wrong with people? They don't hold together very well, do they? They're falling apart. That's what shame and angst and fear described as this feeling. I'm just coming apart. All things hold together in him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have to uh, come to have first place in everything. Uh, later in Colossians he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. There is a false religion that's being warned out in, about in John and in Colossians that this false religion then is a kind of, uh, it, it taps into people's fear and they imagine that they can gain life then through what Paul calls a fleshly mind. But he says, hold fast to the head who is Christ. Be joined to the entire body of Christ, being supplied and held together in its joints and ligaments. It grows with a growth which is from God. Now there is security. There is the reality of finding your place. And in this throughout this, you know, this section in John, these other verses, the, the word believing is a verb. It's a, a believing that's an abiding union. It's something which moves, it develops, it bears fruit. Uh, it, it suggests that whole, one's whole being is fermenting in this, in this kind of growth into uh, a love relationship. So when a Christian is bearing fruit in that act of fruit bearing, he's becoming a disciple. That you bear much fruit, and Jesus equates this with being my disciples. What is the fruit ultimately? I think you're bearing the fruit of salvation. Uh, with this being in Christ, there's an intensification of union. So that whatever you ask, your will is completely given over to the will of God. If you ask anything, I will do it. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, he says, we have confidence and whatever we ask, you know, there is, you know, you can't get it with a billion dollars. You can't get it with, uh, you know, a hedge fund. You can't get it with a helicopter all gassed up. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. This is the, the, the farewell discourse of Jesus in John 17. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, I have known you. And these have known you that you sent me, and I have made your main name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. There is no firmer reality than the inner Trinitarian love the Father has for the Son, and which the Son has given to us. The God who is love is uh, in himself saves us then in this economy of love in which he invites us to come and abide with him. So have security. Be confident in that abiding love. Let's sing our hymn of